you'd open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. This incredible event that marked the beginning of the New Testament or New Covenant church, church that you and I are a part of, and uh, the extraordinary things that were going on at that time and what they mean to us. Um, last week, we looked at two portions of this. We're going to look at just one more today, and then we'll look at two more next week. But first, we looked in verses 1 through 4 at the event itself. This was, as I said then, a really remarkable time. Uh, the Jews had a certain framework for it, but this was extraordinary. This outpouring of the Spirit wasn't something that any of them expected. They knew that they were waiting for the promise, but they didn't know exactly what that would look like and what it would entail. So it was really remarkable when it did happen. And we saw in verses 1 through 4 that the Spirit's infilling of believers makes us a spectacle to the world in our compulsion to make the glories of our Savior known to all. That's what He does. He stirs us up with such an infusion and a a knowledge of the great love of Christ in His death at Calvary that that becomes something that's brimming over and has to be said, has to be communicated wherever we go. And then we saw, secondly, in verses 5 through 13, of the crowd that observed all this that went on. And we noted there that such a spectacle of people compelled by the Holy Spirit to declare these mighty works of God, even though it's by the Holy Spirit Himself, it will not always be immediately understood by those who observe it. Some of them just don't catch on. It takes time. And even even by those who will later believe, we often need repeated exposure to the Gospel before it has its full effect in our hearts and lives. Well, that moves us on then to this third portion, which is Peter's sermon. So I get the easy part this week. I get to preach somebody else's sermon. Peter already did it. It's all here. It's laid out. All we can do is go back and start to take a look at it and see what we can draw from it. It's an extraordinary thing. And it covers verses 14 down through verse 36. This is Peter's sermon on that day. I want to make a number of observations about the sermon, and then we'll come back and uh, apply certain aspects of it to ourselves as we read through this. The first thing you notice about Peter's sermon is that it's scriptural. He starts by going through Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. He moves on to Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And he winds up in Psalm 110 and verse 1. Peter knows that our authority for what we preach is not our experience, but God's Word. We can have all kinds of experiences, some of them authentic and some of them not authentic. But the authority that matches what's needed in people's lives comes from God's Word, not from my experience. Now, my experience should accord with that. I should be able to say, yes, I'm a partaker of this and, 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 and I understand what it is to have come to the saving knowledge of Christ and what He's done for me. But ultimately, the authority has to rest in God's Word and not in us. Because we're not making disciples of us, we're making disciples of Christ. We want people to follow Him. I notice, secondly, that the uh, sermon is rational. He reasons with these people. He doesn't simply get up and 
pronouncements, but he reasons with them. There's issues to be dealt with as he works through both explaining what has just happened on this day of Pentecost and as he goes through the three passages of Scripture that he cites. And so he's rational in his approach. It's a sad thing that has come into the church that has somehow tried to make us imagine, or or, or sometimes we have imagined, that faith is contrary to reason. That's not true. Faith is eminently reasonable if the truth that faith grasps is true. In other words, if I understand that God is God, then my faith in Him is a perfectly rational thing. But if I have no concept of who God is, then faith can appear irrational. But even in the church at times, we've tried to make faith something like a leap in the dark. And Scripture never calls us to a leap in the dark. It calls us to believe what God has said and what He's done. And that's eminently reasonable. And so Paul approaches them on a rational basis. We'll unpack that a little bit more in just a minute. I notice thirdly that this sermon is eschatological and therefore it's urgent. He takes them to this passage in Joel that talks about in the last days and shows them that what has happened with this outpouring of the Spirit is a sign that we have now entered that final era, but then presses it by saying, now this is to take place before the great day of the Lord comes. In other words, this is urgent because here's the sign, and now God's judgment is coming. And so it's urgent that you understand history is moving on. And what God is doing in the world is coming to a completion, and the sign of that, or a great sign of that, is what you've just witnessed in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. His preaching is eschatological and it's urgent. Ours ought to be too. When we lose a sense of urgency over souls, we've probably started to think in unbiblical ways. His return is at hand and that final judgment will come. And we want to prepare men for that day. You recall uh, Paul's preaching on Mars Hill took on that same tone. I note... Fourthly, that it's a personal sermon. It's not preached just in general terms, but he uses personal pronouns. And look at the way that he uses them, because in some might actually be offended by this, but he wants to talk to them in verse 14, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, here's my audience, I'm speaking to you, let this be known to you. And then when he gets down further into verses 22 through 24, he says, now, you're the ones who crucified Christ. You've got to deal with this personally. This has to do with you, with who you are. It's not just some sort of generic thing, but it's very personal. And all of our preaching in Christ is personal. Our intent is to reach you as an individual sitting here today. Not just to speak to a group, but but to get to you. Peter does that. I note also that his sermon here is confrontational. It deals openly with the problem of sin in each of us. It doesn't deal in general terms. It deals with sin because that's our problem. We're going to come back and we'll address that in a few minutes a little further on down the line, but he's not afraid to say your problem is that you're a sinner, that you're guilty before a holy God, and that's what needs to be addressed in the gospel. I notice also that his sermon is exegetical. 
In other words, he doesn't just proof text. He doesn't say, oh, well, uh, actually, I've got one of my favorite preachers of all time is uh, John Flavel, the Puritan, uh, 17th century. John Flavel preaches a wonderful sermon. I've got it. I've read it uh, any number of times. On behold, I stand at the door and knock. And what he does there is say that this is God knocking on the heart of the unbeliever and wanting to come in so that he might save them. Now, John Flavel is about as good as you get, but he's dead wrong on that because that's not what the text is saying. It's simply not what the text is saying. And anybody who's read his sermon on that says, well, you know what he did is he had a good sermon in search of a text. He had a great idea that he wanted, and he found a a verse to back it up. Now, you and I can do that. We can have a point that we want to make to somebody and go and draw out a scripture that we think buttresses our idea. But the question is, is that what that passage is actually saying? Now, in terms of a salvation message, that is one of the best sermons ever preached. But it's not what that passage is talking about. However, everything he said was true, and so it becomes useful. But we want to be exegetical. This is, what, this is what Peter does here. He goes back and says, well, let me tell you what this passage in Joel means, what it's referring to. He takes it in context and, and then brings out the meaning of it. He does the same thing with Psalm 16, and he does the same thing with Psalm 110. These things apply to Christ, and let me show you why they apply to him and why we can't just take a verse and run with it. So he's very exegetical in the way that he approaches these passages. I also note, especially, that his preaching is purposeful. He's got something in mind that he's after. He wants his hearers to do something. To believe and to repent and to be baptized. He's after the salvation of these men, and he's not afraid to make sure that he makes that known. Matter of fact, we'll come back to that later, but a few words from Spurgeon on this topic I think are really useful. I've got a couple, three here to read to you, but they're really worth hearing. This is out of Spurgeon's lectures to my students, and it's a lecture entitled On Conversion as Our Aim. That when we witness to someone or when we preach as we do from the pulpit, there's a goal that we have in mind. And ultimately, the goal is that we want people to hear the gospel and to be changed, to be transformed, to be born again, to become Christians. Listen to the way he puts it. I think he balances it well. The grand object of the Christian ministry, whether it's just witnessing or preaching, is the glory of God. And whether souls are converted or not, if Jesus be faithfully preached, the minister is not labored in vain, for he's a sweet savor unto God as well in them that perish as in them that are saved. But, don't take that and run with it. Some have taken that and run with it and said, oh, that's why it's, you know, it's an obvious sign that I'm really from God because no one listens to my preaching and the world is all hard against preaching. That's not an excuse. And he's going to tell us why in just a second. As a rule, God has sent us to preach in order that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sons of men may be reconciled to him. This is what we're doing. Here and there, a preacher of righteousness like Noah may labor on and bring none beyond his own family circle into the ark of salvation. And another, like Jeremiah, may weep in vain over an impenitent nation. But for the most part, the work of preaching is intended to save the hearers. 
It is ours to sow even in stony places where no fruit rewards our toil, but still we're bound to look for a harvest and mourn if it does not appear in due time. The glory of God being our chief object, we aim at it by seeking the edification of the saints and the salvation of sinners. You see, it's not the bare preaching that's the glorifying of God, but He's glorified when He saves men. And we preach that they might be saved, that He might be glorified. To just put it on the bare preaching is to put us in a place where Christ Himself wasn't. Our great object in glorifying God is, however to be mainly achieved by the winning of souls. We must see souls born to God. And if we do not, our cry should be that of Rachel, give me children or I die. If we do not win souls, we should mourn as the husbandman who sees no harvest, as the fisherman who returns to his cottage with an empty net, or as the huntsman who has in vain roamed over hill and dale. Ours should be Isaiah's language, uttered with many a sigh and groan. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The ambassadors of peace should not cease to weep bitterly until sinners weep for their sins. Man, that's a heart. I have met any number of men in ministry over the years who have thought that their small churches were a badge of honor, and that's not true. We want souls to be brought to the saving knowledge of our Christ. This being fully admitted, he writes, what else should be done if we hope to see conversions? Well, assuredly, we should be careful to preach most prominently those truths which are likely to lead to this end. And what truths are those? I answer first and foremost that we preach Christ and Him crucified. Where Jesus' exalted souls are attracted, I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, Jesus said. The preaching of the cross is to them that are saved, the wisdom of God and the power of God. The Christian minister should preach all the truths which cluster around the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, and hence he must declare very earnestly and pointedly the evil of sin which, the, which created the need of a Savior. That's true even in our witnessing. Are sound. Let me give you one last section. Beloved, we must most of all be clear upon the great soul saving doctrine of the atonement. We must preach a real bona fide substitutionary sacrifice and proclaim pardon as its result. Cloudy views as to the atoning blood are mischievous to the last degree. Souls are held in unnecessary bondage and saints are robbed of the calm confidence of faith because they are not definitely told that God hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We must preach substitution straightforwardly and unmistakably for if any doctrine be plainly taught in scripture it is this the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. He, his own self, bear our sins in his own body on the tree. This truth gives rest to the conscience by showing how God can be just and the justifier of him that believes. This is the great net of the gospel fishermen. The fish are drawn or driven in the right direction by other truths. But this is the net itself. Now that's what Peter was doing. That's what's going on in this in this passage, Peter is after the souls of men, and he makes no apology for it. 
Matter of fact, by the time he's done, he's going to be very pointed on that point. I want to notice a couple more things about the sermon before we take its main pieces apart. It was relevant to the hearers. It had to do with their eternity. It has to do with you, not the guy outside. Everyone who hears the gospel is required to say, what does this mean in terms of me? This is relevant to you, to where you stand today, either in that reconciled condition to the living God or still outside of grace. But we bring it to you so that you individually can deal with it, can wrestle with it, can respond to it accordingly. I hesitate to mention this next one, but because it's in the text, I pretty much have to. It's relatively a short sermon. I'm not always fond of that idea, but it is a relatively short sermon. Not that it's as short as just what you have here. We have in one portion that tells us he went on to exhort them with more words and to work through this. But let me give you another quote from Spurgeon. He says, quote, I heard one say the other day that a certain preacher had no more gifts for the ministry than an oyster. And in my own judgment, this was a slander on the oyster. For that worthy bivalve shows great discretion in both his openings and he knows when to close, close quote. <laughs> There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. His, he doesn't overload them, but he gives them central truth and deals with it and moves on. But above all, if there's one characteristic of this sermon that is head and shoulders above the rest and the most necessary, it is Christological. It is Christ-centered. And as a result, then, it must be cross-centered. For you cannot preach Christ without the cross you cannot preach the cross without Christ. And so he stays there. He wants to drive home these great realities. Well, there's three main things then that he tells them in this sermon. If you're going to be keeping notes, this will be letter A in verses 14 through 15. The first thing that he tells them is what the event they've just witnessed is not. Isn't that interesting? He wants to clarify for them what's happened at Pentecost. But the first thing he says is, this was not a bunch of men getting drunk. Look at his words in verse 14. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is that that was uttered through the prophet Joel. He makes a simple appeal to common sense. His whole argument is, look, it's a high holy day. It's the Feast of Pentecost. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, and you think these people are drunk. Does that even make sense, is his point. It's amazing how afraid I think we can be at times to appeal to common sense in some of our arguments. Jesus did it all the time. They accuse him of casting out devils by the hand of Beelzebul. And so he says, now think about this for a second. If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, and demons are the agents of Satan, how can a house divided stand? If Satan's casting himself out, does that make any sense on this planet? I mean, it's just dumb. That's a rational argument. I was astounded that he didn't go back and pull some scripture out to proof text it, but he doesn't have to. Some things are just stupid. And that was stupid. 
And, and Peter points and says, look, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Well, first of all, we'd have to discuss the difference between wine now and wine then. But getting drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning would, would, would require you starting to get there by around 11 o'clock the previous night. The alcohol content was so low, you couldn't do that. That's why Proverbs talks about don't hang around with those who tarry long at the wine. Because after they do that for a long time, then they get blurry eyes and they start getting hurt and not knowing where the hurts came from. And they live like they're on the top of them, sleeping on the mast of a ship going back and forth. That's an apt description of someone who's had a little too much. And the, but the whole point here is that we use common sense. The Bible's replete with examples. And we can get so spiritual that we neglect to make basic common sense to people. We can take our Christianese, our special nomenclature, our buzzwords, and use them on people who have no idea what they mean. They haven't communicated anything. If you went to your doctor, because you've been coughing a lot, and he said, oh, you've got pneumonoalter microscopic silicovolcanoconiosis, you'd say, oh, thank you very much. Well, what in the world is that? That's why they call it black lung. It's much easier to say. And it's, it's descriptive. It makes sense. But we can use really bad approaches to people. We have to consider the frame of reference that other people are coming from when we say things. Sky and I got a great first-hand uh, object lesson in this the other night. We were on our way up to see Ivan, and we decided to stop and get a bite to eat. And so we stopped at a restaurant, and we're sitting in a booth, and in comes a young dad with his son, maybe five, six years old at the most. And they walk right past us, and they sit in the booth behind us, which was really convenient because then we could eavesdrop without having to really you know, turn around. We could listen to the whole conversation and, and pass it off like we weren't really being uh, nosy. And, and so the father says to the little boy, what do you want to drink? Now the little boy is stuck for an answer. Why is he stuck for an answer? Because he's not like the dad who comes in the door knowing, you know what, the average restaurant has Coke and, and Sprite and lemonade and water and coffee and, and other things. He has no idea. He's five years old. What's his frame of reference? If the father, and, and it's interesting because this ensued in a little bit of a father getting a little bit irritated because the son doesn't know what he wants to drink. He don't want you to make up your mind. What the dad needed to do was say, well, son, you know, in this restaurant, these are all the things they have to drink. Out of those, which would you like? But you see, he's operating with a kid who has no frame of reference. We could do that when we witness to people. And if we don't bring them into a frame of reference, we leave them without an understanding of what we're trying to communicate. So, I suppose Peter could have said, they made the charge, hey, these people are drunk. And he could have gotten up and said, hallelujah, yes, we are drunk in the spirit and we want you to get drunk too. And that would have made no more sense to them than it would have just made to you and me. You see, that wouldn't have gotten them anywhere. You see Paul taking an entire different tack on Mars Hill, but he waits and contextualizes for the audience. Peter does that. Peter does that. Matter of fact, that's why he brings them back to Joel. He knows they're familiar with these passages. He knows his audience. And so he can cite the passage and have them already have in their mind a number of the things that they're saying. A good, sane, common sense response was called for to that charge. Not being ugly and upset. Oh, you charge us with being drunk. How can you think that we're so holy? He doesn't get an attitude. He just stops and says, no, you guys aren't 
drunk. It's, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. It's the Feast of Pentecost. No, something else entirely different is going on. I would notice in letter B, in verses 16 through 21, after he's explained what the event is not, he goes on to explain what the event is. And for this, he makes a complete appeal to Scripture. And he shows how this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied back in the book of Joel, chapter 2. Now again, remember, at this point he has a Jewish audience who would have been familiar with the Scriptures, and Peter can use that as common ground. Paul's going to take an entirely different approach on Mars Hill because he doesn't have that common ground. And you and I have to remember that we're making disciples of Christ, not of ourselves, so we need to take opportunities like this to bring them back to the Bible because they need to understand it from a scriptural viewpoint. We need to help them understand. Because here's the deal. You can witness to somebody, and when you're done, you go away. But if you anchor what you're saying in the scripture, and you leave them with the scripture, when you go away, they still have the word of God. See what that does for them. The word is infallible. We may have messed it up when we described it to them, but, but it sure... We sure can't mess it up if they read it. And the Word will last beyond our influence on them. And the Word is how God speaks to His people. The Word has to be the final authority in all these things. And so we want to point them there. And that's exactly, that's exactly what he does. Again, on this idea of frame of reference, I remember hearing one of the first things I ever heard from R.C. Sproul. He talks about when he was first on the uh, campus of Pittsburgh Seminary. And he's walking across the campus one day, and a young guy stopped him. This was before he was a Christian, and said, Are you saved? And Sproul thought for a minute, and he looked at the guy, and he said, Saved from what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Frame of reference. Take a little bit to help the guy understand what's going on. It's so important for us. Peter's, Peter's good this way. But again, pointing his audience right back to the Scripture and showing that the authority for all that he's saying is coming from the Bible. Not simply a a verse snatched out of context, but three passages of Scripture and what they mean in their context. It's amazingly helpful. Every cult, every apostate church appeals to some authority either equal to or superior to the Word of God. Everyone. You can count on it. Just this last week, or a few weeks ago, I received a letter in the mail at home. It was a delightful letter from some young gal I've never met. I assume she's young. I think by the handwriting in the letter. I don't know. Uh, but she, she wrote a very sweet letter and included in that letter a tract for me to read. She probably picked my name at random out of the phone book. I have no idea how she got my name. And as I read through the track, I saw that there was an awful lot in it that was sound, but when you get to the end of it, it completely misses the gospel. And so as I wrote back to her, and I wrote her a a letter in response, uh, this gal is a Jehovah's Witness. And I went back and I said, now if you will stick to the Word of God and not the watchtower, you'll be okay. And then I quoted a series of scriptures out of her translation of the Bible, the New World Translation. There's enough there in order for truth to come out. 
and sat down and worked through a series of scriptures from her translation of the Bible. But ultimately, the appeal has to be. You see, the truth is, you cannot read this Bible and end up as a Jehovah's Witness. That can only happen if you're introduced to Watchtower material. You cannot read this Bible and end up a Mormon. That's only if you read Latter-day Saints material. You cannot read this Bible and end up a Christian scientist unless you read Christian science material or a member of the way. Or I might say, and I say carefully, Roman Catholicism because the magisterium and tradition are elevated to the same authority as Scripture. If we stick with Scripture, we'll be safe. If we need a separate authority, we're already moving in a bad direction. That's why we want to bring them back to here and not to separate things. We want to bring them to the Bible first and foremost. You will not become a Scientologist by reading the Bible. It won't happen. You're going to have to read L. Ron Hubbard. And L. Ron Hubbard was a nut. I've read L. Ron Hubbard. He was a kook. He died a kook. One can and will become a Christian by sticking to the Scriptures alone and believing them fully. That's where we go. And again, here's an eschatological element in all this. Look at his, his dealing in Joel chapter 2. Pick up in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And at this moment, Peter equates prophecy with the tongues that took place in verse 11 in the previous portion of the chapter, which is the declaring of the mighty works of God. This is the mark that the last days has begun and all of this has to take place, verse 20, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day when, when final judgment will be meted out on all men. And he brings that home to his hearers. Secondly, Peter tells them the significance of what they've heard and what he's talking about at this moment. He tells them why it's important. He draws on that eschatological point and then he tells them how it's important it's important for them spiritually with their standing with god to be reconciled to him to be saved from their sin and then he tells them to whom it's important every one of you who are hearing me matter of fact he's he's going to bring that down at the very end of the chapter we'll come back and and get there but uh, at this point he's he's telling them this is this is for each and every one of you I want you to note two overarching uh, situations there. I, first, the Scripture is being fulfilled, base point. And second, the person and the work of Jesus Christ is the key to understanding the Scripture. You see the point? That's what he does in each of these. He goes back and ties Joel together with the outpouring of the Spirit in the last days in preparation for the final day of judgment. This all gets tied to Christ. And then he goes to Psalm, 1, or Psalm 16. And he explains, uh, this is about Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. 
by the hands of lawless men. And God has raised him up because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he says, for David says concerning him. And now you have the key to understanding Psalm 16. This is about Christ. So he discusses this, puts Christ in the middle of it by discussing a number of things. First, he talks in verse 22 about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And then in verse 23, he does an astounding thing and shows how, there is, how all of this was fulfilling the divine plan that God had and that even human wickedness itself comes under his umbrella of sovereignty. Men are fully morally responsible, and yet God is at work. Can't reconcile those two. They're just the truth of Scripture. And then in verse 24, he tells them of Christ's divine victory over the universal human inevitability. Everyone will die. The wages of sin is death, just as we had up here. But the gift of God is eternal life. And only Christ is the one who has risen from the dead because Psalm 16 is about Him. Then in 24 through 28, he gives the scriptural foundation for the resurrection in exegeting Psalm 16. And then in 29 through 35, he anticipates an objection. And he says, now let me tell you why this psalm can't possibly be about David. And again, he appeals to a very common sense argument. How can I prove to you that Psalm 16 about not leaving his soul, um, uh, verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. How do I know that's about Jesus and not about David? He says it's real simple. Look over there. See that? That's David's tomb. He's still in it. Jesus has been raised from his. Simple proof. Simple common sense. That's his argument as he gets down there, and then in, in, verse, in the last part, now he brings it all out and he says, you need to really know who this Christ is. That's verse 36. So let me bring it to a head. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain these two things, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This is Jesus who you crucified. Lord, for the Jewish mind, was the term reserved for the Father. To the Greek mind, it was the term reserved for Caesar. Christ was the Savior only to those who were of the the Jewish side. All of this brought home to, to Peter's hearers the implication, and don't miss this, that they were complicit in the murder of the one God appointed to be Lord over all and Israel's promised Messiah, and that he's alive where he's going with this whole thing. Now, how do I know that? By the way, they grasped it in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And the rest, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They felt the weight of what he had said. They got it. Well, that brings us then to the lesson of this passage, which is simply this, that the central task of our preaching of the gospel is to make sense of Christ's death on the cross of Calvary from God's perspective. The central task of our preaching, of our witnessing, is to make sense of the death of Christ on Calvary from God's perspective. 
Let me tell you why that becomes important, because there are so many in our day who would try to alter why it is Christ died on the cross. Today, and perhaps the most common way of expressing that for people is He died to show us His great love. And I would ask you to think about that answer for just a second. To simply show us how great His love for us was so He was self-sacrificial. If that's the sum, then here's the scenario you've set up. This afternoon we all go out to Charlotte and five of you jump in the water off the end of the pier and you are all drowning. And now I say to you, oh, I want to show you how much I love you. So I jump off the pier and drown too. What does that do for you? Nothing. That kind of a gospel is a purely humanistic gospel that saves no one. Now, there's got to be deeper things going on here. This is why we said we have to make sense of the cross for our hearers from God's perspective. Why was the cross necessary? Why did this have to come to be? That's what Peter's after here when he brings this all down. The cross has to make sense to us in at least three ways. First, it must make sense in respect to mankind's need as guilty before a just and holy God. See, Christ had to die to deal with our guilt, with our sin, not just to to make an example of Himself. He was an example of self-sacrificial love. That gets applied to how husbands treat their wives. doesn't get applied to salvation. We can understand how great His love is, but His love is located in that He took our wrath, what was due us for our sin. You see, if mankind's problem is merely that we are just broken or sick or deficient or hurt or damaged or mistaken or errant. All of those things which are true. But if that's the sum of the problem and not the fact that we are all of those things as a byproduct of our guilty rebellion as sinners against a holy God when we tried to depose God from His throne and take it for ourselves, then salvation is just some kind of cosmic therapy. It's just going to make you feel better. It's going to fix your broken bone. It's going to to heal your illness. It's going to, to meet the difference in your deficiency. It's going to soothe your hurt, take away your damage, fix your mistakes, correct your errors. That's not salvation. Now, all of those things get packed in that. But the truth is, if mankind is not guilty, then we have no need for someone to be our substitute to take the wrath of God in our place. It's because we're guilty that we need a Savior. The brokenness is a byproduct of the guilt, of the rebellion. By His grace, He deals with that as well, but it's not the core All those things are symptoms. It's why in our day, always looking at moral problems as diseases robs the gospel of its power. Now I just need somebody to give me an inoculation, but I don't need delivered from my guilt before a holy God. The truth is, if we're not guilty, then God has no right to to be angry and to pour out wrath on anyone anyway. 
How can He be angry with us if all we've done is made a mistake? Why would He be pouring out infinite wrath on us if all we've done is just fallen a little bit short, just been a little bit stupid, just made a couple of errors, just been damaged or hurt or deficient? All those things are true, but those aren't the central thing. You see, the cross must make sense in respect to mankind's true need And our need is that we are guilty before a holy and a just God. And if Christ has not taken our guilt and died the death we deserved, then the cross is a sham. We have no cross to preach. Might I say that for many of us, especially in our society today, there are few of us who self-consciously believe that we deserve the death he died at Calvary. But you see, that's what it means for him to be in our place. That's what you and I deserved. And we seldom judge ourselves as deserving that. Instead, what we think we deserve is rescue. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that that we deserved his wrath And that at Calvary, His wrath was poured out, but a substitute stood there and took that wrath in our place. Jesus Christ, the righteous, so that we might be pronounced righteous in Him. Letter B, the cross has to make sense in respect to God's desire as a holy and just God to save lost people. He's both holy and just, and as holy, he cannot tolerate sin, and as just, he cannot let sin go unpunished. How then does he save lost people? Because we aren't holy. We are guilty. How then do we find this salvation? You see, if God's not holy, then sin's not an offense. He's just like us. Just got his shortcomings, just got his errors. And so God doesn't have to judge that. I I was stunned when I uh, read uh, The Shack. And the author to The Shack puts in the words, puts in the mouth of God, who is Papa in that passage, I quote, God says, I have no need to punish sin. Sin is its own punishment a lie. He has an absolute need to punish sin because he cannot be unjust. And just justice requires that sin be atoned for. If God's not holy, sin's not an offense. And if God's not just, then sin doesn't need to be punished. And he can just dismiss it. He can just wave the hand and say, enough done. Cross was, was stupid. Why should I have my son die for that? I mean, after all, I can just say, Ali, Ali, and free. You're all forgiven. It's just a giant cosmic game of hide and seek. That isn't what it is. God is perfectly holy. And in His nature, He's holy. And that's why He cannot tolerate sinfulness. They're ontologically opposed. The, the two can't come together. Because He is ineffably and perfectly and absolutely holy, and God is perfectly just, justice with its right punishments must take place. That's not optional for God. Sin must somehow be 
dealt with if he's to make us his own. This is the miracle of the cross. This is why it's so astounding. Let me just, again, put your nose on a couple of quick passages. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. What do we do then? Or Galatians 5. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Then what do we do? The cross. The cross. Where in Psalm 85.10 it says that steadfast love and faithfulness meet where righteousness and peace kiss. What a wonderful way to express it. In the cross, the Savior who dies in our place. The cross has to make sense in respect to mankind's need as guilty before a just and holy God. It has to make sense in respect to God's desire as a holy and just God to save a lost people. And lastly, it must make sense of why only Christ as the God-man is suited to be our substitute in bearing our sins and to fully vindicate the righteousness of God in being the sin-bearer. Two things quickly. If Jesus Christ was not fully man, then He has no business being our substitute. He can't do it. It's what we had read for us in Hebrews chapter 2. It fit that He become like those who He was to save, to endure our weaknesses, to to live in our skin, literally. It's the human race He's stepping in for, for fallen mankind, not for angels. And if He's going to be our substitute, He's got to be one of us. If Jesus Christ was not fully human, He could not be our substitute, but He is. Born of a virgin. Part of Adam's race. And secondly, if... If Jesus Christ was not fully God, then He could not be sufficient before God to satisfy all of God's holiness so that the gospel can be preached to all. Because the the debt is infinite. And if He's not God, He couldn't meet an infinite debt. How could He satisfy the infinite holiness of this just God? He's got to be both. He must be both Lord and Christ. The Messiah as the one who was promised of David's seed and Lord as the one who was second member of the Godhood. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's why the cross is necessary. In the final analysis, this is what Peter's sermon did here. What all of our gospel preaching has to touch on in some way. The central task, once again, is to 
is to make sense of Christ's death on the cross of Calvary from God's perspective. Why was this necessary? And that's what he unpacks for us. What for his hearers? That day. Let me wrap this all up in two statements. The cross is necessary in order for the infinitely and inviolably inviolably holy and just God to save men from their just condemnation without perverting justice. If He's going to remain just and forgive us, the cross is necessary. And secondly, Jesus Christ alone is fit to be the Savior because He alone is fully man to be our true substitute and fully God so as to satisfy God's infinite wrath and provide our necessary righteousness. What a gospel to preach. And that's what Peter does. What does he do on the day of Pentecost? He preaches the gospel. Why is Pentecost sent? So that the gospel can be preached with power and men can be saved from their sin. This is what's going on. The church empowered to go out and to make and to declare these truths to the salvation of men's souls. Will you stand with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank You for these truths. I thank You and I pray that Your children here today, the believers, will be strengthened in their resolve to preach and to pray for fruit and to take these simple elements and reiterate them in their own context to the people they encounter. Oh, that... Christ might be preached. This crucified Christ. So that men might come to the saving knowledge of this Lamb of God. And, and Father, if there be any here who have never considered these things in this light, may today be the day. They have heard that their, their guilt is real and that you must yet judge it. That that final day of judgment is coming, but you have sent Christ the Redeemer. And He has died that substitutionary death on Calvary that each one who puts their trust in Him will have absolute forgiveness of sins and have the righteousness of this amazing God-man imputed to them that they might walk with you in joy and freedom and the hope of eternity. May today be the day that you crush their hearts for their sin and heal them with the blood of the Lamb. Amen.